We're excited to have Lance Witt back with us. Lance has spoken here before, and those of you who've heard him in the past uh, know that it's always uh, great when he's able to be here. For those of you who don't know Lance, Lance was on staff at Saddleback Church. He was one of the pastors out there with Rick Warren in California for a number of years. Now he's got a ministry called Replenish, which just helping folks to uh, grow in their relationship with God, to recover from challenging times in their lives, and just to really flourish. But I think Lance's probably proudest thing and greatest claim to fame is that two weeks ago he became a fourth-time grandfather. Is that correct? Four granddaughters? So that's uh, pretty exciting for him and for his family as well. So let's give Lance a welcome as he comes up and speaks to us. Thank you, Clay. Well, thanks, Clay, and and, uh, thank you for allowing me to be back. And I am excited about uh, being a grandfather. You know, someone told me not long ago that being a grandparent really is one of the few things in life that's not overrated. And uh, I would somewhat agree with that. We have four granddaughters, all under two and a half. So um, Christmas is going to be a little bit crazy at our house, but I am honored to be back at Renaissance. Anytime I get invited back anywhere, it's a real privilege because usually I only get invited one time. So <laughs> thank you for your tolerance and for letting me come. Um, you know, I, I've enjoyed getting to know you as a congregation uh, the couple of times I've been here before. Um, I love Dave and Julie and the band and the kind of worship that you have here. But I've also had the privilege of really getting to know your staff. And you have a great staff team here who love you, who work hard, who are passionate about the things of God. And uh, so I just want to encourage you because I get to work with church teams all around the country. And I want to encourage you to pray for them and also to encourage them. You know, I know that these last uh, few weeks, couple of months have been a time of real challenge for you as a congregation. And I think when you go through tough times and challenging situations, there's a couple of things to think about. One is it's a time of testing. It's a time to test who we really are, what we really believe, what we're about, and how well we're gonna hang together during a time of crisis. But it's also an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to pull together, to rally around what we know is most important, uh, to lock arms with each other and be about the things that are really the things that God has called us to do as a church. In fact, I was thinking about the name of your church, Renaissance. We know that that word stands for a period of time in history between the 14th and 17th centuries in Europe where there was renewed interest in art and science and literature, but it's come to mean much more than that. The word renaissance means a new birth. It's a reawakening, it's a revitalization. And I really believe that that's what God is up to right now in your congregation. That this is a time of a new beginning, of reawakening to really what God wants this church to be. And that's not just the job of the board or elders or staff. It's really something that all of us have to own. And that's exactly what I want to talk about this morning. If you go to the book of Titus, there's this one phrase that really captures me in the second chapter and the 10th verse when the apostle Paul talks about making the teaching of God, our Savior, attractive. So I want to ask you the question, what would it look like for Renaissance to do life outside of these walls in such a way that we would actually make the gospel 
attractive. What would it look like for us to do that? Well, here's the good news. We don't really have to wonder. We've already been told. And by the way, it has nothing to do with the sermon on this platform. It has nothing to do with how killer the band is or how well run the music program is or how cutting edge the church website is. Jesus said there is one thing and only one thing that he gave the world the right to judge the authenticity of our faith on. And he told us that in John 13. So let me just read the word straight from the lips of Jesus. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then here it comes. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Jesus said, you wanna make the gospel attractive? It's not just about what you do up here in this building on the weekend. You make the gospel attractive by how well we love one another, how well we care about each other, and how well we love those who are out there in the world. And so I want to talk about what it would look like for Renaissance Church to ignite a renaissance in this community. For there to be a new beginning of a new day in the life of this church, for you and I to begin to take on the ownership of expressing the love of God in bold and radical and extravagant ways, to not just be containers of God's love as people who have tasted the goodness of God, but now to be conduits through which his love flows to us, to not just be reservoirs where we soak up the goodness and love and blessings of God, but we now become rivers of the real life love of God in the lives of other people. And to to do that, to sort of set the tone of that, I wanna have you go with me to the 13th chapter of Luke where there is this story of Jesus encountering a woman and I want you to see how in this encounter, he does some things that if we would do them, they would make the gospel attractive to our community. So let me uh, have you look with me at Luke chapter 13. It says, on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over. She couldn't straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he calls her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. So in those four simple verses, you find a woman who hasn't been able to stand up straight for almost 20 years. She has this encounter with Jesus and her life is radically changed. So imagine the scene, if you would. Jesus is the guest rabbi, much like I'm doing this morning. I'm the guest teacher. He's teaching in the synagogue and in the crowd, there was this woman so disabled that for 18 years, she was unable to stand up straight. And the Bible says that as Jesus is talking, he's scanning the crowd, maybe just like the crowd this morning. And I kind of envision that she probably sits at the back and she's got her normal place where she sits and she's kind of bent over and she's straining her neck forward to try to watch Jesus as this rabbi teaches. And there's this one moment as he's teaching when the Bible says, He sees her. He notices her. 
He pays attention to her. His eyes lock eyes with her eyes. And I think that when that happens, he is moved with compassion because of her condition. And in the crowd that day, he sees that one individual person. And so for me, and that is the first principle of, I wanna talk about four ways to make the gospel attractive. Here's number one. Don't let the many keep you from seeing the one. You know, you live in a part of the country where there's just a mass of humanity, isn't there? I mean, there's people everywhere on the trains, on the subway, on the roads, at the gym, in your office. There's just this press of people everywhere you go. And it would be easy for you to kind of just look at all that and see not individuals, but see the mass of humanity. And it would be easy to feel sort of paralyzed by all that, to just throw up your hands and say, what's the use? What's the, what's the point? But here's the principle I want you to get. And I think it could start a renaissance in our community. And the point is this, do for the one what you wish you could do for the many. You can't meet everybody's need. It's too overwhelming. But there is that person that God will bring across your path, that person you work with, that next door neighbor, that person that God wants you to just see that one. And here's a lesson that I'm learning and it's been hard for me and it's this. You can't pay attention in a hurry. If you're gonna really notice people, you have to slow down. And when you examine the gospels and you read the life of Jesus, he never seems to be frantic. He never seems to be in a hurry. He never looks past people. He always takes time. And if you and I are going to see the one, we gotta slow down. It may mean that you actually physically need to slow down the pace of your walk. It may mean that you need to look up from your newspaper or put down your phone. It may mean that you actually need to look somebody in the eye and notice them. And that's exactly what happens in this story. And here's what I know to be true. There are all kinds of people in this community who are just waiting to be noticed. I mean, you walk by them, they stand up straight, they smile, they shake your hand, they make pleasant talk, they have nice clothes, they have, you know, respectable jobs. But on the inside, many of them are emotionally crippled. And they really wonder, is this all there is in life? And they feel isolated and lonely and they wonder if there's any purpose for their existence and they are all around us. And here's one of the things that you and I know because we follow God is that one of the great miracles of scripture is that God pays attention to me that he knows everything about me. In fact, the Bible says that he notices every detail of my life and that he says in scripture that every hair on my head is numbered. And whenever one falls out, he notices. Now it's my experience, he doesn't replace it, but he does, he does notice it at least. There's this great blessing in the book of Numbers that says this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. You see, when you turn your face towards someone, you give them your clear and undivided and interested attention. You, you notice. And in this story, there is that one moment when Jesus is teaching and he sees that woman, not as just part of the crowd, but as the one, and it would forever change her life. 
So we want to make the gospel attractive. It starts with noticing the one. The second principle found in the story is you've got to venture outside of your comfort zone, and that involves risk. So think about what Jesus does that day and what it would be like if I did this in my sermon. So I notice somebody, my eyes lock eyes with them, and then Jesus does this. He singles her out. That's unconventional. That's, that's not public speaking protocol, right? Not only does he single her out, but he actually calls her to the front. Now imagine what it would have been like for this woman. I'm sure very self-conscious. She walks into the room. She's disabled. She wonders what everybody thinks. She probably sits at the back. She's probably trying to be inconspicuous as possible. And then all of a sudden, this rabbi calls her out and brings her to the front of the church. And here's the point. Demonstrating bold, radical, extravagant love will always seem a bit risky. And you know it and I know it. We live in a world that is marked by chaos and by violence and it doesn't feel very safe out there. And in some ways, it makes you want to quarantine your family, right? There's so much bad and disease and evil and stuff out there that you, you know, we just want to pool all of our money and go buy a big compound somewhere where we can sing worship songs and love one another and be safe. And yet that's not what God called us to do. He called us to get out there and mix it up in the real lives of people. And that's uncomfortable and it's messy. And here's the truth. If you really choose to be a loving person, just mark it down. Sometimes your love is gonna get rejected. It's gonna get stepped on and it's gonna feel very uncomfortable. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung out and possibly be broken. If you wanna make sure of keeping it intact, give your heart to no one. And he's absolutely right. But we've been commanded by God to be in the world and to love people right where they are, right in the middle of their mess. And that feels risky. I remember many years ago, I was working on my doctorate in uh, Denver. And um, one day as part of kind of an experience that we had with our group, we had a a panel discussion with a group of AIDS patients down at the Denver Metro Clinic. And in those days, there was a lot that was unknown about AIDS and how it was transmitted. And so there was a lot of paranoia around AIDS. And I remember walking out of the Metro Clinic and across the street was a huge Catholic church. And on it, there was this huge banner announcing that next Sunday would be Big Hug Sunday. And what they did is they invited everybody who had AIDS in the community to come to the, the parish that Sunday. And at the end of the service, the priest would invite everybody who was HIV infected to come and stand down at the front. And the congregation would file by and just shake their hand or give them a hug because they knew that for some of them, that was the only physical touch they were going to have. And for some, I'm sure it felt risky to just reach out a hand, to give a hug. And for you, it may feel risky to love people that you normally wouldn't love. So let me ask you, who is it that you need to love that isn't easy to love? Now, if they're in the room, don't point at them, all right? Or if you're sitting by them, don't nudge them, all right? 
But who is it that you need to, and, and it'll require some risk and it'll require you to be uncomfortable. Well, let me give you a third thing. I think that if we did this, it would actually make the gospel more attractive in our community. And it's this, speak words of blessing to people. I love how when Jesus calls her forward, he, he touches her, he lays his hands on her, and then he speaks words of blessing and healing over her life. And I think one of the things I wanna remind us of today is how much power there is in your words. Proverbs eighteen twenty one says, the power of life and death is in the tongue. We get that. All of us could go back in our minds 10, 15, 20, maybe 40 years to something that somebody said to us when they believed in us, when they spoke words of life over us, when they saw potential in us, and it made a huge impact in our lives. And in the same way, some of you could go back to your childhood and you can still remember word for word something a parent said to you, a coach said to you, a friend or a teacher said to you, and you still carry the scars of those words today. Your words have incredible power and you have the power to uplift and bring hope and joy and life and belief or you have the power to cut and destroy and beat down people with what you say. All in just how you use your words. Mother Teresa once said, kind words can be short and easy to speak, but their echoes are truly endless. And we've all experienced that. It's interesting if you were to read on in this passage, the leader of the synagogue steps up and he confronts Jesus because Jesus healed this woman, get this, on the wrong day. How asinine is that, right? This woman just got back her life. She's standing up straight. She's been instantly healed. And this guy wants to argue policy. And when Jesus defends his actions of what he did for that woman, he refers to this woman, but he does not call her a little old cripple lady. You know what he calls her? The daughter of Abraham. And I have in my mind that she walks out that day of church and she's standing up straight, feeling 10 feet tall, looking people in the eye, noticing things she hasn't seen in 20 years and ringing in her ears are those words, daughter of Abraham. And you and I have the privilege outside of these walls with people in this community to look them in the eye and say to them, you matter to God. You are created in his image. Jesus unconditionally loves you. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. You are loved. And when we do that, we make the gospel attractive. I remember the story, my friend, Buddy, he used to speak. I don't know if any of you are, remember the promise keepers days and the big events they had to, you know, for men around the country. And, and my friend, Buddy was speaking at a stadium where they had 65,000 men. And these guys were all standing, hands in the air, singing worship songs at the top of their lungs. Buddy said, and, and he's right, I've been in those stadiums. It is an amazing moment. And Buddy said, he looked down off the platform and off to the left, he said, on the front row, there was this man standing and next to him was a young man in a wheelchair. He said, I would later find out that that was this guy's son. And he said, I found out later that the young man had been hurt in a sporting accident in high school. 
um, and become paralyzed. But because of further complications, he'd become a quadriplegic. He was now unable to speak and had even um, lost his sight. And this dad was so moved in that moment and he couldn't stand the fact that his son was unable to participate. And so he reaches down into his wheelchair, puts his arms around his son, and just with all of his might, pulls his son to his feet. And he's holding him chest to chest and singing this worship song right in the face of his son. And Buddy said, I watched that boy and watched the smile come across his face. And he said, here was a young man who had absolutely no strength, nothing to give on his own, and yet he was the total object of his father's love. That's the message we get to communicate to people outside of this building. Is no matter how broken, messed up, what things you've done in your past, you are the object of God's love. And listen, if we actually believe that and started living that, we would make the gospel so attractive that people would finally pay attention. Well, let me just give you one other thought that comes out of the passage. If we want to make the gospel attractive, we've got to seize the moment. Jesus would never come by this synagogue again. He would never cross the path of this woman again. And so he seizes the moment. He, he's just teaching and then he sees her. He's moved with compassion. He calls her forward. He lays hands on her. He speaks words of blessing over her and her life is forever changed. But he took the moment then. And this following week, you're gonna have a moment like that. There's gonna be a moment when you're gonna feel that prompting like somebody in need, should I do something? What, how could I help? And you're going to have a choice to make. Whether you just go on with your busy life or whether you'll actually stop and take the moment and respond in love. You, you'll get to decide whether or not you'll do it. I love this one verse in Hebrews chapter three where the writer says, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Here's what he's saying. You can't encourage yesterday. It's gone. It's history. You don't own tomorrow. You don't know what's coming. What you do have is right now. To live in the moment of today, in this moment, to actually be that person, the ambassador who would make the gospel attractive by how you live. You can do that by how you do that. But it's not easy. And let's face it, we don't live in a world that's very friendly to this, right? We live in a world that is very cutthroat. It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, no free lunch, no cutting in line. We don't live in a world that is very grace-filled. I mean, if you don't believe it, just get out on the freeway, right? There is no grace out there, right? People will wave at you, but just with one finger. Do they do that here? Do you, any of you remember the, the, the old sitcom Cheers? You remember that? All right, a few of you. You remember Norm, the great philosopher, Normie? I remember when he has, one guy walks into the bar and everybody goes, Normie, how's it going? <clears throat> and Norm's response was this, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world and I'm wearing milk-bone underwear. <laughs> and I think that's how a lot of people feel 
out there in the world. It just chewed up, spit out. It's a hard place. And will, will we make the gospel attractive by how we love? So ever since the days of John 13, when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, the towel has become a symbol of humble, loving, caring servant leadership. It's not, a, it's not a symbol of power and money and status. It's a symbol of, of servanthood. And ever since that day, and we all have towels in our house, right? And you've walked into people's house and you know, you, you go into somebody's home for the first time and then you find out where the restroom is. You go to the restroom, you, you wash your hands and then all of a sudden you're confronted with this dilemma. Because on the, on the rack is this, right, guest towel. And it's the only towel that you see. And you think to yourself, man, I, I can't use the guest towel. It's perfect. It's spotless. It's, you know, it looks great. It looks like it's never been used in its entire life, right? And we have these guest towels. They're great for decoration. But for what towels are made for, they're useless, right? I mean, they might look good, but they don't do anything. But you also have other towels in your house. I always call these garage towels, right? Because these used to be guest towels. <laughs> and they're sort of tattered around the edges and they're stained and, you know, they're dirty and they don't look very good. But this is the towel you, you know, you wash the car with, you clean the dog with. This is what you wipe up the paint stain with. This is... This is what towels were made to do. So can we just make an agreement? When you show up in heaven, when your days on this planet are over, could we just agree we're not gonna show up like guest towels? I mean, kind of pretty and stain free and hanging on the wall, but really not much use. Um, Let's show up like this, beat up, worn out, involved in a lot of messes, a little bit stained, but we did a lot of good. You see, in the kingdom of God, greatness is not about grabbing for a throne. It's about grabbing for a towel. And when you and I do that, when we decide to be that kind of church, we will make the gospel attractive, and we will start something new that will be really fun to be a part of. And so I'm gonna ask us just to bow our heads. We're gonna close in prayer. In fact, I'm gonna ask you just to stand right where you are, and I'm gonna close our time together in prayer. But I just wanna ask you, what, what is it that you need to take away from today? Is it you need to start being different with your words? Or is it for you that, you know, this week it's about risk and being willing to do the uncomfortable because the, the love of God compels you to do it? Or is it actually seizing the moment to, to do what you need to do? Lord, as we conclude this service, we just, 
want to be open to you, Lord. Um, the truth is sometimes loving people and doing the things that we've talked about today, they're hard and they're uncomfortable and they can feel awkward and it's messy. But Lord, we know that's where you would be. It's where you were. It's how you treated people and we want to do the same. And Lord, we believe that if we would do that, if we would be that kind of church, the gospel would be more attractive. People aren't impressed with our sermons or our music or our websites near as much as they are impressed with people who really love one another and love the world. So God, break our heart, give us compassion for the people around us and mobilize us to actually do good this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys. God bless you. Have a great weekend.